The Brief is supported by Bloomberg Connects, the free arts and culture app. Uncertainty rages over the future of HS2's Euston Terminus. Dramatic cabinet reshuffle brings sixth change of housing minister within a year. UK accused of violating international law over poverty levels. And WeWork's bankruptcy calls into question the future of urban regeneration. My name is Finn Harper. I'm an architecture critic and I will be interrogating this week's big stories in architecture, planning and housing news. Welcome to The Brief from Open City. My guest this week is Gareth Dennis. Gareth is a railway engineer, writer and sustainable transport advocate. Welcome to the show, Gareth. It's a huge pleasure to have you on. Yeah, it's a, it's a pleasure to be here. My favourite railway engineer, I'd, I, I'd say, you know, there's a, there's a huge community of uh, online pundits in the railway world, but I think Gareth's, Gareth's material is the best, in my opinion, so do follow him after the show. Um, uncertainty rages over the future of the HS2 Euston Terminus as rail experts weigh in to criticise private sector delivery and, quote, over-engineering. Earlier this month, the Architects Journal dug into the archives to uncover the tumultuous history of the Euston Terminal, which has been a conundrum that has dogged the HS2 project ever since the high-speed line was first dreamt up. Almost a decade ago, the now former chair of HS2, David Higgins, declared that there could be, quote, no compromise when it came to Euston. However, eight years and numerous chief executives later, the original plans for the HS2 terminus have seen countless revisions and arguably a lot of compromises. Despite spending... £289 million on design fees. A final design for Euston has still not been approved. While the station plans seem to be shrinking, the price tag continues to grow. Currently it is £4.8 billion, almost double the 2020 estimate. Some unofficial budgetary estimates have put the cost at £7 billion. The new civil engineer reported that a principal designer on the original HS2 plans said there was, quote, plenty of evidence of HS2 over-engineering to account for the project's ballooning costs, as well as a skill shortage and numerous changes to the design scope. The latest plans, announced last month by Prime Minister Rishi Sunak, are to scale back the original 11-platform terminus to a six-platform station and to look to fund the project from the private sector. However, critics of these plans warned that using private sector development companies is not the right approach for an infrastructure project of this scope and national importance. This all comes as Mr Sunak has announced the scrapping of the Manchester leg of HS2, simultaneously authorising the sale of land and properties acquired on the northern route. It has emerged that the government spent £564 million on compulsory purchases for the cancelled route and are now poised to sell off all that land at a loss. The former technical director of HS2, Andrew McNaughton, and former Crossrail manager Richard Morris have both urged the government not to sell the land and instead to safeguard it for the future. So, Gareth, you're a railway engineer and a writer. What's your opinion of the government's decision to strip the publicly owned HS2 Limited of responsibility for the Euston Station and scaling back of the development? What's at stake here? Basically, I'm of the view that HS2 Limited should never really have existed as an entity anyway. For a nationally strategic piece of infrastructure that is, you know, hundreds of miles long, actually taps into multiple bits of the existing rail network, it makes no sense to deliver HS2 as a single thing called HS2. So HS2 Limited should never really existed. However, it did. And so to then unpick that in the middle of the project's delivery makes no sense. You do not change who is delivering that partway through its delivery. In fact, when you're substantially through the delivery of some of the more expensive parts of the of the project. So 
actually break you know breaking that section off delivering uh Houston under a separate body might have made sense from the start in fact definitely would have made sense from the start delivering Houston as a single standalone project but doing so now um is really part of just scaling back the project and then of course we talk about the fundamental scaling back of Houston Houston should be the gateway from London and therefore from Europe to almost all of the rest of the UK. Um, and in fact, what we're talking about now is not only are we reducing the the fundamentals in terms of physical capacity of that station, but also the, the vision is, it was already looking like a, a, a fancy version of Birmingham U Street. You know, it was already going to be drowned by oversight development. Now it's looking like it's going to be a, a kind of a stitched on extra couple of platforms. It's it's, it's really, really embarrassing. We, we just deeply and fundamentally lack imagination uh, at, at a policymaker level in this country. It's very frustrating. So yeah, I mean, six platforms just just seems like a massive kind of retreat from the level of ambition that a lot a lot of us were quite excited to to see. Yeah, it's 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 fundamentally about this scorched earth policy that's happening. It's about making sure that HS2 cannot be delivered in full. That's why we're seeing this reduction in scope, the sell off of the land. Fundamentally, it's about making sure that it's impossible, politically impossible, for the next government to uh, decide to change course. I guess he would say, oh, no, come on, Gareth. It's all about cost. Uh, this is, you know, the costs are ballooning. They're, they're, they're going to be really high. Uh, he'd point to somewhere like Canary Wharf Station uh, that was developed as part of the Crossrail project, which um, by comparison seems very, very cheap. Only 500 million pounds, apparently, for Canary Wharf Station. Uh, obviously, far fewer platforms might explain part of the uh, the difference in price. But why is Euston proving to be um, so much more expensive? It's a very easy and frankly wrong answer to go with over-engineering is the reason. Let's, 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 take, let's take a couple of examples. Firstly, a substantial reason the fact that Houston is becoming very expensive is because there was another project that was supposed to deliver quite a sizable chunk of the scope that HS2 now have, and that project was called Crossrail 2. Crossrail 2 was supposed to be the project that would deliver all of the TFL, so that's the uh, stuff, you know, all the London Underground connections um, underneath Houston Station that are currently deeply, uh, excuse the pun, unfit for purpose, you know, dangerous, overcrowded. The, the Officer Rail and Road has actually put a, a, a kind of a warning notice to the operator of the station, Network Rail, saying the level of overcrowding is dangerous at Euston. And that's now, not in 10, 15, 20 years. That's one fundamental multi-billion pound element of the Euston Station project that HS2 was not supposed to have to deliver and is now having to deliver. So that's one key thing. Another challenge is the fact that as HS2 has become an increase in political football and um, you know, remember that HS2 had fundamental cross-party consensus for delivery um, and still does, and yet... Yeah, as as Treasury and, and others have decided that they're less happy about the money being spent on HS2, oversight development um, being brought in as a way to reduce those headline costs to kind of make the, the immediate balance sheet look sensible to Treasury. When in actual fact, what that means is a lot of power has been given to the oversight developer at the expense of the station itself, making the scope uh, more complex. So rather than it being a transport interchange, it's suddenly becoming actually a lot of power handed to Lendlease, to the oversight developer, and actually a lot of expense, too many cooks spoiling the broth, too many stakeholders trying to pull it in different directions. This should be a transport interchange, first and foremost. It's going to be challenging enough um, to get you know Camden, TFL, HS2 Limited, Network Rail, all these stakeholders to agree. But at least if it's a transport interchange, first and foremost, all of them are basically facing in the same direction. As soon as you bring in an oversight developer, they want the opposite because they want as little transport interchange as possible. They want the maximum empty concrete to put buildings on top of. But over-engineering, 
well, I would always challenge to say, what specifically are you talking about? Because this is a station that should be fantastic. It should be it should not do this classic British thing of be basically a temporary structure that's unfit for purpose from the day it opens. We should be looking into the future and actually delivering capacity in terms of space on the platform, in terms of circulation space on concourses, in terms of so on and so on and so on. We shouldn't be shrink wrapping, cling filming this thing within an inch of its life, which is, you know, part of the course for Britain. Yes, I'm sure many architects uh, listening will be familiar with this idea that over designing is somehow bad. Actually, often you want to design something like lot because you want it to be fantastic and, and maybe that is simply what is going on here what are the other kind of key aspects of the the uh rolling hs2 story that uh, listeners should be thinking about at the moment yeah certainly so looking at a national level we you know we've, we've got huge amounts of uncertainty about what happens north of birmingham um to all intents and purposes that, that that's gone what is certain or rather what is certainly uncertain is the the devastation this represents the, the the loss of hs2 as a as a fixed point as a as a certainty to be delivered and um, you know technically we've talked a lot about passengers but actually let's briefly talk about logistics because this is actually really important you know how, how goods move around the country is is a real challenge you know we've got an aging hgv workforce and those who those who drive hgvs the uh, charters institute for logistics and transportation had a 15-year plan that they've been developing for 10 years that relied on hs2 fundamentally because hs2 releases an enormous amount of capacity on the existing railway network for more you know more freight among among other services and um, that plan is obviously in in the bin on fire at this point so um fundamentally britain does not have a plan for the future and that is absolutely true and from a transport perspective as much as for anything else you know this week, the media was rocked by a major government reshuffle following the dismissal of Home Secretary Sorella Breverman first thing on Monday morning. It is a reboot of government that has brought the sixth change of housing minister within a year. Breverman was sacked in the immediate aftermath of enormous ceasefire protests last Saturday, which saw, according to organisers, the Palestine Solidarity Campaign, a million people march from Hyde Park to Vauxhall in central London, calling for an end to military violence in Gaza. Tensions in the run-up to the weekend had been high after Breverman penned an inflammatory article in The Times describing the protests as, quote, hate marches and accusing the Metropolitan Police of, quote, playing favourites with left-wing groups over nationalist activists and those aligned with the far right. As was widely reported by the national media, several violent skirmishes broke out between far-right groups and the police from as early as 10am on Saturday. Scenes depicting clashes around the cenotaph in Whitehall were widely shared across broadcast and social media, along with later altercations across several iconic city centre locations. London Mayor Sadiq Khan issued a statement saying, quote, The far right have clearly been encouraged and emboldened by what they have heard this week, including from senior politicians like the Home Secretary. I hope everyone takes the time to reflect on the impact of their words and the actions they have on others, end quote. Breverman has been replaced as Home Secretary by James Cleverly, a moon of which paved the way for the biggest surprise of the reshuffle, the return of former Prime Minister David Cameron to become the new Foreign Secretary. Victoria Atkins was meanwhile made the new Health Secretary, while Laura Trotz became Chief Secretary to the Treasury, and Steve Barclay replaced Therese Coffey as Environment Secretary. Rishi Sunak also appointed Lee Rowley as the new Housing Minister, replacing a disappointed Rachel McLean, who was due to announce the much-anticipated Renters Reform Bill on the day of this recording, November the 14th. McLean was the sixth housing minister to, to be appointed within a year when she took the role in February and the 15th since 2010. Rowley, meanwhile, is returning to the post which he previously briefly held between September 2022 and October 2022 during Liz Truss's 49 days as Prime Minister. 
So, Gareth, you know, what's this reshuffle all about? What are the likely impacts on government policy, particularly with regards to transport and the built environment? And what do you make of it all happening now in the wake of these huge protests? Contrary to some of the immediate reports, we, we've seen that actually this, this reshuffle had been about a week or more in, in the pipeline. So this wasn't a direct response to the to the Times column, um, remarkably. This was actually more in response to the, um, to the statements that uh, Braverman had made about homelessness. But I think there is some level of reflection on on Braverman's increasingly ratcheted rhetoric, essentially saying anyone who supports the cause of uh, a ceasefire in in Gaza um, is is a Hamas supporting uh, you know terrorist uh, sympathizer. Pretty much excludes what was the polling seventy six percent of the of the UK population. Um, you're not supposed to say the quiet part out loud. So even though a lot of the, the, her right wing colleagues may be agree with her or or maybe kind of share those those feelings you're not supposed to fly that close to the sun and so she maybe was a bit too explicit about the the underlying intentions and, and it was time to move on cameron arriving is is well i wouldn't use the word interesting in anything related to cameron but it is certainly um worth commenting on that he is back into the fold i i, I don't think this is um sunak seeking a a more centrist position frankly i see this as grasping around in the dark for anything different we're running out of road for this government and they, they're not really sure what happens next in terms of what that means for for built environment policy it means that everything goes on the back burner already transport has been on the back burner for for a while you know housing you know, the renters bill and, and, and looking at getting rid of no-fault evictions again being delayed paused all these key things that, that allow a little bit of security for individuals in, in society when it comes to housing this decade the 2020s is the decade for everything to be built you know, from a climate change perspective, it cannot be the 2030s, it cannot be the 2040s, it has to be this decade. And we're running out of 2020s. If we're talking about insulation, we're talking about you know, new housing stock, we're talking about new infrastructure, urban infrastructure, HS2, this stuff all needs to be happening this decade. Absolutely. Um, let's just talk about uh, freedom of speech for a, a moment, because it did seem last week like there might be a, a massive curtailment of freedom of speech. And it wasn't just Breverman. Sunak himself was involved in the attempt to ban uh, this protest that happened last Saturday and, and saw potentially a million people marching at it. Uh, he said, I think that he wanted to hold the chief of the Met Police accountable for not banning uh, that protest, which for anyone who is kind of passionate about your civic right to demonstrate in in a public space seemed quite chilling. Do you think that uh, with the changes to the cabinet's new Home Secretary, new Foreign Secretary, we might see uh, a different approach to freedom of speech from the government? Or, or do you think that that sort of very hostile approach to uh, large scale demonstrations will will continue? It's funny that the, the dial has shifted so much that we're looking back at the coalition government and then Cameron's government as as being one close to the centre, given the the the, the, the changes to the, to the Human Human Rights Act and, and other alterations, that there are actually a massive contraction of our of our rights. Um, it, it, I don't think we're going to see a change in direction. We may see a cooling of some of the language and rhetoric, but I don't think we'll see a slowing of the of that change, that 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 alteration, that reduction in in our personal and, and civil liberties and, and and those of 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 kind of protected groups. It's 
lots of people refer to that ratcheting of rhetoric. That ratcheting only goes one way. So, so I, I don't think we'll see a, a change in direction, but we may see a cooling of language. The removal of Rachel McLean from her position as housing minister appears to have caused, out, caused outrage within the sector. The British Property Federation Chief Executive Melanie Leach said, quote, the revolving door of housing ministers has turned once more. For a sector that thrives on certainty and wants to see a long-term plan for housing, such discontinuity in personnel is a significant concern and actively undermines investment and long-term commitment across the sector, end quote. Um, you know, Gareth, the housing crisis is one of the most pressing issues for a significant portion of the population. We talk about it every single week on this show. What is the impact of these housing ministers constantly changing so often? And why does that revolving door keep on spinning? Why can't they just, you know, fix that post in place, even if they're making changes elsewhere in the cabinet? Yeah, that, that we've, we've talked in relation to other other subjects about the complexity from having multiple stakeholders getting involved, and that's certainly the case when it comes to housing. You have housing developers who want who do like the idea of building lots and lots of houses, but not building them so quickly that it impacts on house prices. You have charities and groups uh, and activists talking about homelessness that point out that there are a lot of empty homes around the UK. Um, you know, yes, the Yimbia argument that we should just be building thousands and thousands and thousands of new homes. There is some truth to that, but I think there is, we should temper that by the fact that there is in fact a large amount of housing stock that is unoccupied um, spread around the country, but particularly in London that's used as an investment. While our entire economy relies on inflated house prices, because that is fundamentally what our economy is, is propped up on, we are going to have this warped procession of uh, of the approach to housing. And, uh, and of course, uh, another bang, uh, drum that I like to bang hard, the, the lack of devolution to local authorities for them and empowerment of local authorities to build uh, local authority housing. Again, you know, all these different players, all these different stakeholders, the changing in housing ministers is yet another variable that's wiggling around. And so when you have you know various um, you know, representatives of the big developers who you know we should always treat their their thoughts with a pinch of salt while we have them kind of hoping for a bit of stability while we have discussions about energy all these discussions it's all up in the air no decisions are being made no concrete decisions meaning an industry that requires multiple kind of you know years and decades look ahead does not have that as the COVID inquiry continues to shed light on failings during the pandemic, the link between poor housing and COVID deaths has been grimly demonstrated. In a AJ opinion piece last week, Tanya Jennings, who was the energy officer for Ealing Council for four years, illustrated the spatial similarities between excess COVID deaths and households experiencing fuel poverty in the West London borough. Working together with Dr. Maddie Gupta-Wright from Ealing Council's public health team, she was able to map the loss of a thousand of Ealing's residents and the long-term effects on the borough's healthcare infrastructure, along with data on fuel poverty to paint a picture of how interlinked the two issues actually are. In 2021, the borough's fuel poverty hovered around 16.8% of homes, with some areas as high as 30%. Today, due to the combined energy and cost of living crisis, those figures have nearly doubled. She wrote, quote, Before COVID, we believed that fuel poverty's impacts on health and life expectancy were hard to verify, and that evidential symptoms such as damp, mould and overheating have slow and immeasurable effects. The pandemic showed the reality to be quite different. Respiratory and circulatory illnesses are significantly increased in the residents of poorly insulated, under or overheated homes, especially those with carbon-based heating systems and those where damp and mould are present. And when a global respiratory illness comes knocking on a poorly insulated door, the impacts are immediate and quantifiable. Fuel poverty kills and it does not always take its time. 
End quote. Very long quote there. Uh, Meanwhile, the United Nations poverty envoy who visited the UK this week has warned that Britain's high poverty levels are, quote, simply not acceptable and that the UK government is violating international law. The Guardian reported that Oliver Tushuta, the UN's special rapporteur on extreme poverty, slammed universal credit payments of £85 a week for single over 25s as, quote, grossly insufficient and went on to describe the country's welfare system as a, quote, leaky bucket. So, Gareth, how have we got to this point where people's homes in the UK have become such a threat to their lives? What do you make of the revelation that there is this correlation between bad housing and COVID deaths? Being someone who uh, likes to bring things back around to transport or certainly to transport adjacent themes, I I will say that for me, this comes back to a a kind of a devolution point. This comes back to a centralisation versus devolution to local authorities point. Fundamentally, we are kind of roughly building about the same number of kind of private homes as we have been for ages in the UK. And the gap really is in the fact that we're basically not building any local authority council housing at all. And that relates also to the funding and condition of existing local authority, you know, council housing stock. Huge percentage of the population, relatively speaking, relies on council housing, relies on on housing at the bottom end of the quality scale, as it were, relies on private rented accommodation. And that's a number that grows as more and more people find themselves closer to or tipping over the poverty line. We're just seeing a degradation, a, a desperate stripping of of quality and desperately trying to squeeze profit out of, in some instances, the maintenance of homes for the most vulnerable in, in society. Um, you know, Little to think of those who don't actually have a permanent home or, or don't have a home at all. So I think this comes down to that lack of, of devolved funding and power. If we had local authorities that were more powerful, that were able to take more of their uh, of their, the local taxation, but were also better centrally funded, we had less centralization of that power, we would have local authorities able to respond more more, uh, more rapidly and, and more tar- in a more targeted manner to the need of higher quality housing at that lower level. Absolutely. I mean, over the last 12 years, I think um, local authorities have knocked down or sold off 120,000 more publicly owned social rented homes than they've actually built so like we're just hemorrhaging um uh homes uh much much faster than we're, we're actually building them and i wanted though you know uh, what's the impact of this on on transport providers because over the past couple of years especially now energy costs are so crazy high we have been seeing uh, increasing reports of elderly people rough sleepers um seeking refuge from the cold and damp on public transport uh, among other kind of warm spaces that they can get to during the day you know how how do kind of transport um operators deal with that strain what sort of impact is uh, poverty and bad housing having on the transport sector in the uk yeah uncomfortably i think the rail industry and, and, and certainly the train operators and others are pretty hostile to to, to homeless people within the the confines of kind of the railway estate and, and the public transport estate, you know, the, the things like benches that have separators between each seat. Some of these small but quite insipid sort of um, of decisions. I, I think fundamentally, as with any part of the of, of discussion of housing and, and, and spatial planning, transport is absolutely critically and fundamentally inextricable from that. So when we talk about uh, you know the increasing numbers of, of people who are either destitute or or close to or very or, or kind of below the poverty line. Yeah, it's not just about the fact that they're relying on public transport for warmth, but also if you're relying on public transport increasingly because you cannot afford housing that's remotely close to your work, uh, the fact that we've seen bus services obliterated outside of London. I'm not being, I'm not exaggerating. Have a look at the statistics for the level of 
decimation of, of bus services we've seen outside of London. And, and indeed, bus services not doing too well in London with TfL central funding being pulled back as well. But that's critical. You know, I, I love railways, talk about railways a lot, but buses are fundamental to a lot of people. And, and the stripping back of buses is, is really, really limiting people's uh, ability to, to hook up a, an already diminishing pool of affordable housing and having to travel further and further. People who already have time poverty, you know, often, you know, the examples of single parents with children who have very limited time to then find their way to work. You know, we're just basically making lives uh, for people a lot, a lot harder by the, the massive spatial planning and transport decisions that are being made. I'm going to move on to the final story. Uh, WeWork, the shared office startup, once valued at 47 billion US dollars, has filed for bankruptcy in the United States, possibly signalling it is time to rethink our approach to repurposing work environments and more broadly what successful contemporary urban regeneration should really look like. Following the US bankruptcy announcement, the Evening Standard reported that the company's co-working spaces in London will, for the meantime, remain open. However, there are reports that some individual sites, such as WeWork Blackfriars, will close. This news comes as a major commercial regeneration project in the UK capital has been placed under the microscope for failing to deliver the uplift it promised. A series of old railway arches in East London were supposed to become a new hub for kind of luxury high-end fashion. However, as reported in The Guardian this week, eight years and £100 million later, the project, which was called Hackney Walk, has ended up deserted. The scheme, which was designed by David Yajay, who has separately been facing allegations of sexual misconduct and funded by a private developer along with Network Rail, kicked out uh, existing businesses from the area and then replaced them with gold facades and shops with price tags to match their blingy exteriors. But, writing in The Guardian, Simon Usborne described the area now as a, quote, ghost town. Shutters are broken, the slate is crumbling and graffitied chipboard covers the smashed-in former entrance of Geeves and Hawks, with only one shop remaining open. So, Gareth, what, what's this all about? What does the first? What does the WeWork bankruptcy say about the future of workspaces uh, in cities across the UK? And in this moment of so much change in working patterns and and big office providers going out of business, should we be questioning uh, so many large scale office developments still going ahead, like the proposed redevelopment of Bastion House and the old Museum of London site in the city of London, which are still mooted. Firstly, the, the demise of WeWork is really a canary in the coal mine for the fact that the economy is real again. You know, we've reached the end of free money and so all of these venture capitalist nonsenses are, are you know, the gig is up as it were. It's a more interesting story to talk about the, the these changes in working patterns, the impact on commercial real estate. London, a city uh, that relies a lot on people coming into the city and then disappearing back out of it again, has seen quite substantial changes to where people are working and a lot of people working from home. Outside of London, the picture is slightly different. You know, only about one in four people actually have a job that allows them to work from home. I mean, I live in York, and York has a chronic shortage of high-quality office space. This is a known issue for a lot of the employers in the city. You know, the Homes England are currently trying to develop the York Central uh, in order to attempt to tackle that problem. The picture is different in different places. And actually, outside of London, uh, where office space is needed to be office space rather than just an investment for you know growing a wealth fund, office space is in, is in short supply. Yeah, I mean, that sort of certainly resonates with the, the Hackney Wick story. It was sold uh, when they first did the regeneration as this kind of like, you know, Burberry will have a big store there and it will be this sort of luxury destination uh, in these old railway arches. Um 
Do you think it was a good idea that has somehow gone wrong and fallen on hard times because of changes in the economy? Or could it be said that it was never a good idea? It was always working against the local community and uh, perhaps the developer should have seen its demise coming. Yeah, regeneration is not always a tool of evil. In fact, it's quite often a, a useful tool. And I think the challenge you've got is where you have um, well-laid plans led perhaps by a, a money-making uh, developer rather than having the buying of the community you're going to come a cropper and it's a good example that area um, thrives on the fact that it's kind of grown up organically by happenstance businesses have popped up and you know there's there's all sorts of great stuff that that, that kind of pops up and happens that happens organically not through big regeneration initiatives and and there's only so far that big regeneration initiatives can go particularly if they are excluding um, excluding the local community, not necessarily getting the buy-in of local people. Another good example is Elephant and Castle. You know, okay, so some of the shops within the Elephant and Castle Mall might have been ones that they maybe weren't the tidiest and, and may not may not have appealed to everyone. But frankly, they were the only places you could go in and get stuff affordably for a lot of people in the area. And actually, you know, those businesses have been there for a long time and they haven't gone. They're not going to be able to afford the, the rents. And who comes in to fill fill those holes? Well, chains. Uh, you know, or or kind of some of those sort of glamorous or high end shops that, frankly, people don't have the money to go and spend it. You know, local people, local communities need to have buy in for these these sort of things to work. Yeah, it felt like the 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 decision. I mean, Ajay uses a lot of gold in his architecture, right? It's black and gold is his his kind of color scheme of choice. But the decision to plonk these. Um, gold shutters on the outside of these these arches seem particularly kind of egregious uh, in a relatively deprived area. Um, obviously, that's not the pattern across all of London, where there are lots of um, arches still. So Network Rail, I think, has 5,500 5, arches in its portfolio, and Transport for London owns around 800. Um, but then there's this whole thing about loads of them being sold to the Arch Co., which is actually a, a sort of a big venture capital company. You know, we had uh, Hetty O'Brien from The Guardian on the, on, the, on the show reasonably recently talking about that as a kind of big scandal that was ending up putting nurseries out of business and, and rents were being ratcheted up at an incredibly fast pace. I wondered if you could just kind of talk us through your perspective on, on what's going on with um, Arches in the capital and beyond uh, and what you would do if you had control of them or, or what we should be doing with our, our Arches if, if what we're doing isn't, isn't the right approach. Um, one of the advantages of the railway owning the things under the railway, like railway arches, is that, say, when you need to replace a bridge in very you know busy, complicated London, um, you can temporarily relocate a business in one of the arches, reasonably straightforward because you're the, the landlord. If the arch company are there, you can't do that, and that limits your ability to, f- to fix, upgrade, um, update the railway. So, so number one, it was very, very stupid for, the, uh, for Network Rail to be forced to sell off the, the arches, most of the arches, the, the arch company. Second, those arches were in their previous guise as being a public asset owned by nationalized um, Network Rail. They were making money. They were also allowing a lot of independent small businesses, local community businesses to succeed, to thrive, to have space that, as we've just discussed, doesn't exist. You know, there is no, the very little affordable independent business space in and around London. So the arches were perfect for that. And, and they thrived. They, they did really well. And they made us money. They were, they made money. You know, they may not have made, you know, developer venture capital cash, which is the problem here, isn't it? You know, they weren't seen as a massive growth market. They just paid for themselves, gave us a little bit of extra 
you know, if I had my way, I would nationalize that compensation, get those the arch company back into uh, network rail uh, so that we can exploit that as an asset, as a public good. You know, small businesses, independent businesses. Okay, some glamorous businesses too. Fine, great. But um, those should be a public good, not just because um, it's the right thing to do for the local community, for local independent businesses, but also when I want to replace my bridge, it's quite useful to have a bit of extra space to do so sometimes. So we've just got time to look at some of the cultural uh, happenings in London this week. I'm particularly excited about an uh, open city uh, debate coming up called What Actually Is Feminist Architecture? A lot of people in architecture and construction sort of think of themselves as feminists somehow, but rarely kind of say what that actually means, rarely articulate what that means for their work and their practice, how they run their company, the kinds of jobs they don't take or do take. Uh, so li- the lineup for that debate is uh, Neighbour who set up uh, Black Females in Architecture, or, or co-set it up, uh, and DeGraff Johnson, who was one of the founding members of the Matrix Feminist Design Collective back in the 80s. Martha Summers, a kind of architect radical who uh, rather like. Uh, Toby Spavin, a builder coming from Wales to talk about what feminist architecture means on a construction site and Alberta Lauridsen who co-founded the kind of young rising star practice edit who explicitly described themselves as feminist architects so that event is on the 30th of November at Rich Mix it's going to be a sort of short sharp series of micro manifestos uh, hopefully articulating what each of these different people mean and think of as feminist architecture Uh, tickets are on the Open City website Gareth is there any kind of things you want to plug any cultural happenings that uh, are appealing to you in York or London? Related to that is is, is today the launch of uh, Collapse Feminism, which is a, which is a really great book. People should go out and see. It's I think it's publication today, so uh, relevant to that. So yeah, go 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 find some uh, some launch events for uh, for uh, collapsed feminism. That should be uh, should be really interesting. Um, as well as obviously uh, you know uh, people listen to the podcast and uh, uh, Rail Natter and, and so on and so forth. I was going to ask where people could follow you before doing a, a plug for our Christmas shop. So where should people follow your 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 writings and your musings? Yes, so I, I don't shut up on Twitter. So you can find me on there, Gareth Dennis. Um, I, I, I write kind of a bit longer form uh, for various national publications but usually I scoop things up and put them on Medium as well but um, uh, also there's there's some interesting projects coming out next year that I, I can't quite talk about yet but I'm excited to um, and uh, yeah I, I, every week I have a podcast uh, Rail Natter uh, you can find that on all good podcasting platforms but if you like slides if you like basically watching a PowerPoint presentation with my uh, grinning mug in the corner then uh, come on YouTube <laughs> Fantastic Rail Natter and before we go I just wanted to shout out Open City's Christmas shop uh, Open City's obviously a charity we spend um uh, most of our, our our energy and our money delivering educational programs uh in london and birmingham specifically supporting young people from underrepresented communities to pursue careers and studies in architecture or landscape or engineering and and, and so on we could not do any of that without our fundraising that happens all year round but one of the biggest kind of moments in our fundraising calendar is the christmas shop uh, we've made all sorts of lovely things available for you to buy, uh, sort of London-themed socks and little model buildings that you can make. We've also, uh, we're republishing Jonathan Nunn's sensational book, London Feeds Itself, which sold out in six weeks last year, but is now available for pre-orders uh, and other kind of various Christmas goodies as well. Uh, so please go to shop.open-city.org.uk uh, for your Christmas shopping needs. Um, Gareth fantastic to have you on the show i hope you can come again at some point thank you so much and see you soon 
You've been listening to The Brief from Open City, made in association with the London Society and the 20th Century Society. This show is made possible in part thanks to Bloomberg Connects, a free digital guide to art and cultural organisations around the world. A link to download Bloomberg Connects is in the show notes. If you've enjoyed The Brief and want to know more about any of the stories we've discussed, we recommend subscribing to The Architect's Journal, which covers all these issues and many more. To get early ad-free access to The Brief and support Open City's wider work empowering young people from underrepresented communities, please become an Open City friend today. The link is in the show notes. The Brief is produced by Poppy Waring and hosted by Phineas Harper, Merlin Fulcher, Cyber Chadder and Fran Williams. The series editor is Merlin Fulcher. Our theme music is by Chris Zabriskie. Open City is dedicated to making cities everywhere more open, accessible and equitable. Thank you.